Well, hello, everyone. Praise the Lord, it's so bright up here. <laughs> if you're struggling with the gloominess, just come and stand up here. This is awesome. All right. Well, today, our story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 25, and I love how this worked out. We didn't plan this, but if you're following along, in our uh, SOAP, which is our church's Bible reading plan, we just read this story on Monday. So for many of you, it will be familiar, but it is the story of Abigail. Now, Abigail is someone from all outward appearances. She was a woman to be envied because the Bible tells us she was a sensible and beautiful woman. Now, many of us would be glad if either one of those could be said about us, but Abigail was both. And add to that, she was wealthy. So the subject for our story today is a smart, beautiful, wealthy woman. But despite that outward appearance, her life was far from perfect because Abigail had the misfortune to be married to a fool, literally. Abigail's husband's name was Nabal, and Nabal's name means scoundrel or fool. She was married to a fool. All right, so we have this story taking place in a time when Saul was still the king of Israel. And David, who would be the next king, and his 600 men who were following him and helping him, they were in the wilderness hiding, running from Saul who wanted to kill David. So for a time, David and his men were coexisting with Nabal's shepherds who were keeping their sheep. They were, they were in the same wilderness. And these shepherds would later say that David's men acted like a wall of protection to them. So, hoping for some return kindness for this protection, David asked Nabal for some provisions so that he and his men could celebrate a feast day. And Nabal very rudely refused, which made David very angry and he began plotting his revenge. And this is where Abigail comes into the story. Because one of Nabal's servants heard what David was about to do. He was about to attack Nabal's home, and he couldn't go to foolish Nabal about it, so he went to sensible Abigail. And this is what this servant said to Abigail. He said, now therefore, know and consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all of his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. So Abigail is asked here to know and consider what to do. So first she had to know her situation, because she not only had a foolish husband to deal with, she also had an, a soon-to-be very ill-tempered king who was having a bit of a temper tantrum, to say the least. And being a woman in this time meant she really didn't have the authority to challenge either one of these men. And yet the safety of her whole household had fallen to her. So what did she do? Well, let's first talk about what she didn't do. She didn't have a pity party. She didn't sit down and wring her hands. We don't see any account of her complaining that none of this was her fault, that these men in her life, you know, they're, they're causing all of this. No, we don't see any of that. We also don't see her trying to reason with Nabal. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 18:2, fools, fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. 
So if a fool has absolutely no interest in really understanding, then it would seem that the ill-tempered king would be a better choice, because at least since David wasn't a fool, he would have some interest in understanding her point of view. So that's what Abigail did. She went to the king. She knew her situation, she considered her options, and she went out looking for David. And she didn't show up empty-handed because the Bible tells us she packed enough food and drink to feed David and his men, which is really all he had wanted in the first place. She sent her gift on ahead of her, and then she followed after. And this is where we're going to begin reading. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay him any attention. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young men you sent. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Verse 30, when the Lord has done all that he promised and has made you the leader of Israel, Don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. And with that little speech, Abigail diffused this whole situation. She turned the heart of a king and she saved the lives of many people in her home, her household. And she did it by reminding David who he was. See, she reminded him that he was going to be king. And she told him that what he was about to do was far beneath the character of a king. And that if he did it, he would regret it one day. In fact, she told him that this would be a staggering burden to him. The memory of it would haunt him. And then she softened all of this, what really amounted to correction, with admiration for him and by recognizing the favor and the blessing of God and the calling of God on David's life. And it worked. Let's read what David's response. Verse 32, David replied to Abigail, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow morning. Then David accepted her present and told her, return home in peace. I have heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. Now Abigail went home. She finds her husband drunk. So she doesn't even tell him what happened until the next day. And then when she told him what had happened, the Bible tells us his heart died within him and he became like a stone. And he lay that way for 10 days, and then he died. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he asked Abigail to be his wife. She accepted. So she went from being married to a fool to being married to a king, and it was her wisdom that got her there. See, it wasn't her beauty, and it wasn't her wealth, it was her wisdom. So we're gonna talk about wisdom today. First of all, what is it? The word knowledge and wisdom are often used interchangeably, but really they are not the same thing. Knowledge is a clear and certain perception of that which exists. It's the learning of information. 
Okay, so we could say knowledge is a collection of the facts, the collection of the truth, but it doesn't guarantee a correct use of that truth. For that, wisdom is needed. Wisdom is the right use or exercise of knowledge. It is discerning or judging what is most just, proper, and useful. All right, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great as a knowing fool, but to know how to use knowledge, that is to have wisdom. So let's think of an example of this. I think Spurgeon would likely call the religious leaders in Jesus' time knowing fools. See, they had all of this knowledge of the coming Messiah. They knew the prophecies but they failed to see that the fulfillment of that prophecy, those prophecies that they knew very well, was standing right in front of them. So they had all of this knowledge, but it didn't profit them because they didn't rightly use what they knew because they lacked wisdom. They only had knowledge. Proverbs 4, 7 says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. So wisdom is the principal thing. It is of the utmost importance. It is a high priority. You could say it is the foundation upon which we build our lives. And since this is true, we need to get wisdom. And I want us to understand we are not talking today about the kind of wisdom that comes to us in a moment we need it from some external source. Now there are times when we need that. Uh, when we, we need wisdom, we don't have it, and God tells us what to do in those cases. He says, come, just ask me, I'll give you the wisdom. In fact, James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if you need wisdom and you don't have it, ask God for it. He'll give it. He's generous with wisdom. But what I want to talk about today is not those moments of wisdom where wisdom comes to you from an external source. I'm talking about abiding wisdom, the kind of wisdom that lives in you. Because wisdom doesn't have to come and go. Wisdom can live in you. We are told in the Bible to walk in wisdom. Doesn't that paint the picture of walking through life with wisdom as your companion? You walk in wisdom. Ephesians 5.15 says, Be careful how you live. Don't live like fools. Live like those who are wise. So we're told here to live wise. That makes wisdom a daily practice. Now we read about Abigail that she was sensible. This word sensible is the Hebrew word sekel, and it means intelligence, success, discretion, knowledge, prudence, understanding, and wisdom. It means wisdom. So the way Abigail handled her predicament when it, when it came up wasn't one moment of brilliance. See, she didn't just go out and ask around and somehow get the wisdom she needed and then apply it. No, she already was wise. The Bible called her sensible. That's a word used to describe her character. She had the wisdom in her. So as we talk today about getting wisdom, I want us all to understand that that's what we're talking about. We're talking about how do we live wise. Now, wisdom, as we've already said, isn't obtained just by having information. That's knowledge. You also aren't born with wisdom. That's intelligence. 
And you don't just pick up wisdom here and there as you go through life. That's common sense, and there's nothing common about wisdom, is there? Now, we're, how do we get wisdom then? Where do we even begin to look for it? Well, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 9:10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. All right, so this says fear of the Lord, that's where wisdom begins. So let's talk for a moment then about the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 31:30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So let's talk about charm and beauty. Charm, it can be disingenuous. It can be faked. It can be used for selfish gain. Beauty, now beauty is nice to have, but what a frustrating thing to pursue. It fades. No matter what you do, it fades. And yet, even though these things are true, what do we value in the world today? Charm and beauty are valued, aren't they? Do you know we need to pay more attention to what the Word of God says about what is truly important? Because this said fear of the Lord is what matters. Fear of the Lord is what makes us wise. So how do we fear the Lord then? What does that mean? In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, fear God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus said, fear God, but there is a purpose for this fear. See, the purpose is that you would go to God for salvation, for eternal life. Not that you would run from him hiding in dread. You know, you can't hide from God anyway. The Bible tells us every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There are no exceptions to that. So wisdom, then, recognizes God's power, and we make our declaration of his lordship now, now while, while it's still a choice for us. And from that point on, you fear God with a different perspective. See, you still recognize his power and his awesomeness, but you do so with the understanding that all of God's power works on your behalf. See, you fear him not with dread, but with awe and with reverence for him. Now, when you reverence the Lord, that's when you've begun to seek wisdom. The starting point for your search is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 2, 1 through 5 says, My child, listen to what I say and treasure my commands. Tune your ears to wisdom. Concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would for silver. Seek them like hidden treasures. Then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord and you will gain the knowledge of God. So this says here that you understand what the fear of the Lord is when you listen, when you tune your ears, when you concentrate, when you search for and cry out for the wisdom of God as though you were searching for a hidden treasure. Fear of the Lord then caused you to seek him and seeking him causes you to find him and to find his wisdom. But it was fear of the Lord that began this whole journey. So that's how we get started. But we're told to get wisdom. So let's add to this. In getting wisdom, the first thing that you need to do is apply yourself. Now in Mark chapter four, uh, Jesus said, Jesus said to them, be careful what you are hearing. 
the measure of thought and study you give to the truth that you hear will be the measure of virtue and knowledge that comes back to you and more besides will be given to you who hear. So Jesus said it's the measure you choose to apply that determines what comes back to you. Now how do we apply ourselves? Well, we just read that wisdom is like a treasure that we are searching for. If you were 100% fully convinced that there was a massive fortune buried in your backyard, how would that bit of information dictate how you spent your time? I mean, think about it. Would you not invest in a really good shovel and spend every possible moment digging? The only reason you wouldn't do that is if you really weren't convinced that that treasure was there. Somebody told you it was there, but eh, you didn't really believe it. Otherwise, you would be digging. Well, can I tell you something? There is a massive fortune buried in the pages of your Bible. In fact, Proverbs 8.11 tells us wisdom is far more valuable than rubies. Nothing, nothing that you can desire can compare with it. There is an incomparable treasure in the Word of God. And if you really believe that, you're digging. The only reason you wouldn't dig is if you didn't really believe that. Colossians 3.16 says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let, that's a choice word. You choose to let the Word of God dwell in you. And when you do, you'll get a treasure of wisdom dwelling in you. Now, this goes back to that everyday faithfulness that Kristen talked to us about last week. This is digging every day. Every day. Every day. You're being faithful to yourself in in this case. You are faithfully digging out the treasures, the gems in God's Word. I'm going to give you an example. Last week, in the Evening Sisterhood group, I met a woman who's fairly new to River Valley, but a co-worker brought her to Sisterhood and she just kept coming. And she attends our weekend services now, and she also attends Sisterhood, and she's most recently signed up to attend Alpha. So this woman gives three days out of her week to, to committing to being here at church. Why is she doing this? Because she recognizes that there's a treasure available to her. So she's committed herself to finding it. She's digging. And understand that coming to church, leaving her home three times a week, that you could say is her shovel of choice. That's the way she's choosing to dig. Maybe for you, you just sit down in the most comfortable chair in your home, in your pajamas, but you do it every single day. You put your face in the book of God and you unearth the treasures that are available in there. Because Jesus said, It's the measure you choose that determines what you're going to uncover. See, this woman that I met last week, God sees her desire to know him, and he can't wait to reward it. And that's true of every single one of us. Okay, let's move on. The second thing we need to do to get wisdom is we must esteem it. Let's return to Proverbs chapter 4 for instructions in this. We read verse 7, wisdom is the principal thing Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. Verse 8, exalt her. Don't you love that wisdom is referenced as a woman? (laughs) Exalt her. She will promote you. She will bring you honor. 
when you embrace her. So we are told to exalt wisdom. Now, when you exalt something, you lift it up. We raise it up in our priorities. We raise it up in the level of importance that we put upon it. Now, interestingly, we just read that when we exalt wisdom, wisdom exalts us. So we just read that wisdom will promote you. It will advance you. It will raise you up higher. Now, we're also told to embrace wisdom. Grab on to wisdom and refuse to let go. Verse 13 says, take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Do you know the world is going to try and wrestle godly wisdom away from you? We, we open our Bibles and we read so much wonderful instruction in there, full of wisdom. The Bible says, live this way, think this way, believe this way, talk this way, act this way. And then the world comes and says, oh, that's too hard. That's too strict. That's too narrow. Do it this way, it's much easier. And now there's a fight on your hands. What are you going to hold on to? Are you going to embrace and hang on to the wisdom that you are given? Because if you will, it will bring you honor. And this is what happened to Abigail. Now let's think about Abigail. She held on to instruction, even though she lived every single day with foolishness. Foolishness was the governing authority in her home. You could say she submitted to foolishness every single day. And yet she didn't use it as an excuse to remain simple-minded herself. She pursued wisdom in spite of, of her, her environment, in spite of her surroundings. And when she did, it brought her honor. When she was called upon to know and to consider what she would do, she had that wisdom in her, and it brought honor to her. It made her be married to a king. That's a promotion. Now, we've talked about the fear of the Lord. Before we leave this point, I want us to talk about its opposite, which is the fear of man. Because the fear of man will keep you from esteeming and embracing the wisdom of God. See, God gives you wisdom again. But then you take that wisdom, and we all do this sometimes, and we weigh it against the opinions of other people. See, if I do this, what's so-and-so going to think? If I do this, how does that line up with popular opinion? How does that line up with what the experts say? And we actually, without really realizing we're doing it, we weigh our options, and we actually are, are trying to decide whether or not we're going to obey the wisdom of God or not. How do, we know, how do we know if we're doing this? How do we know if we fear God or if we fear man? Here's how you know. It's the voice that's loudest to you when you are making a decision that is the voice you esteem the most. That's the voice you fear. And that voice must be God's voice. Because the fear of man is one, is the big, one of the biggest obstacles that you and I face in fulfilling our God-given purpose. Because we can actually restrict ourselves. We take those opinions of man, it's like we put a ceiling over how far it is that we'll go in our lives. That's not wisdom. We have to esteem the voice of God, even if it goes counter everything the world tells us. His voice must be exalted in our lives. All right, third thing that we need to do to get wisdom is embrace mystery. 
Do you know when we apply ourselves to seeking the wisdom of God, we are going to run up with, against some things that we just don't understand. And that makes sense to us because, listen, God is smarter than us, and we're talking about digging into a book that he authored. So it makes sense. We don't need to beat ourselves up about this. There are some things we just don't understand. Maybe we're reading through our Bible and we, I, I don't know what that means. Or maybe we get to a point where we think, I thought I knew what this meant, but I'm sensing there's more here. There's a mystery here, and I haven't yet fully grasped it. Or maybe we look at what we see in the Word of God, and we understand what we're reading there, but the mystery comes in when we look to our lives, and we don't see what's here happening in our lives. There's a mystery, and we need to embrace that mystery. Albert Einstein said, it's not that I'm so smart, it's just that I stay with problems longer. Isn't that interesting? Einstein himself attributed his success in the world of science to his perseverance, not his intelligence. Now, clearly Einstein was intelligent, man was genius. But what set him apart from all the other smart scientists of his day? He would tell you it's that he pursued answers until he had them. And if he can do it with science, how much more can we do it when we're facing a mystery in the Word of God? Listen. It's not a problem to not understand. That is not the problem. The problem is when we stop trying to understand. We allow the mystery to make us frustrated and we give up. 1 Corinthians 2 says, however, Paul speaking, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. So there is, Paul said, a wisdom that comes from God and that this wisdom is hidden. But notice, Paul says, God didn't hide it from you. He hid it for you. It's hidden for our glory. So God then hides wisdom with the intention that it would be found. Now, if you've ever had an Easter egg hunt, you know that the purpose of having the hunt is that the eggs would be found, right? You don't hide eggs, especially if they're real eggs, and then hope no one finds them. So then, if the purpose of the hunt is that the eggs would be found, where do you hide an egg for a two-year-old? Right in the middle of the floor. <laughs> in plain sight, right? Why? Because that is a toddler's capacity for finding things. Now, as your children get older, they enjoy and are capable of a little more rigorous search, so you begin to hide them more creatively. Now, God then, in much the same way, he measures our capacity for discovery, and then he hides his truths accordingly. And some truths are really easy to find, and others take a little more of a rigorous search. And now you might be thinking, why hide the wisdom at all? And the answer is found in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2, which says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. Who are the kings? The Bible calls us kings and priests. The Bible says that we will rule and reign with Christ. So the mysteries of God are hidden in the word of God because your royalty becomes defined 
in the search for that wisdom. You benefit from the search. The Passion Translation says this, it says, the honor of kings is revealed by how they thoroughly search out the deeper meaning of all that God says. So when you run into mystery, embrace it. This is an honor for you, stay with that mystery because it is a benefit to you. Do you know there is a benefit to asking a question of God? And that question is, what does that mean? I ask this question so often, I can't even tell you. God, I don't get it. What does that mean? And see, when you ask God that question, it opens a dialogue between you and the Lord. It's like handing the Holy Spirit an invitation to explain the mysteries of God to you, to participate in your time in the Word of God. This is an honor for you. I love what R.A. Torrey said about the mysteries in the Word of God. He said, it is clear that there must be difficulties for us in a revelation such as the Bible. If someone were to hand me a book that were as simple to me as the multiplication table and say, this is the word of God. In it, he has revealed his whole will and wisdom. I would shake my head and say, I can't believe that. It's too easy to be a perfect revelation of infinite wisdom. There must be in any complete revelation of God's mind and will and character and being, things hard for the beginner to understand, and the wisest and best of us are but beginners. Isn't that beautiful? You know, Abigail, she wasn't born wise. She had to develop this wisdom in her. When the time came for her to know and to consider what to do, she had to have that in her already. There wasn't time to go out and cultivate a life of wisdom when the problem came up, this was a slow, methodical, day-by-day -day pursuit of God. It's that everyday faithfulness. Get the Word of God in you. And when you do, you'll have the wisdom that you need in the moment when you need it. In fact, if I could say it this way, if you will put the Word of God in you, you will have a Word from God when you need it. Because that word is in you, and then the Holy Spirit comes and he just stirs it up. The perfect word for the perfect time. And you have positioned yourself for him to be able to work that way in you because you have filled yourself with the word of God. Now maybe you're like Abigail, and maybe you live every day in an environment where godly wisdom isn't valued. Maybe you work in an environment like that. Don't let that be the reason you won't pursue it yourself. Get wisdom, pursue it every day, dig for it like a, a treasure, and live wise. And I wanna end by one more scripture from Proverbs 4. It says, my son, my daughter, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and they are health to all their flesh. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you.